You're listening to The Drag. The story you're about to hear contains brief mentions of drug use and physical violence that are gruesome and disturbing in nature. Please keep this in mind as you continue to listen to this podcast. Soon after sunrise on March 31st in the year 2000, a park ranger at Big Bend National Park found a skull and torso poking out of a shoddily dug grave. The body was partially wrapped in chicken wire and aluminum tent stakes laid nearby. It was one of the most remote, harshest parts of the desert park. The body had been there for six weeks. That body belonged to a man named Shannon Roberts, but he was better known as Doc. Doc was a 40-something-year-old medical student at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. He collected random clutter, like plastic models of skulls, feather boas, and scuba gear. He befriended younger college and high school students and supplied them with beer and weed. He was looking for someone to help him kill himself. Doc was good friends with Mike Baker. Mike was 17 when he met Doc. He had just graduated from a Christian school in San Antonio. He grew up reading spy novels and liked listening to Metallica. He remembers his time in high school when he got high every day and was failing his classes as the most glorious days of his life. He decided to help Doc out. Doc drove all night from San Antonio to bring Mike to the grave he had started digging in the mountainous desert near the border. Doc asked Mike to stake him down and cut him open. Again, Mike couldn't do the deed as Doc had asked, so he surprised him with a rope around his throat. Mike drove home, listening to the song Breathe by Faith Hill, and picked up the $2,000 payment Doc had left for him in his mailbox. Welcome to Request Pending. I'm Sarah Schleed. This podcast is about all the places we go to find comfort and community on the internet. For some, that comfort comes through sharing soothing videos or crafting ideas. For others, it's through the unsettling worlds of true crime. That story I just shared is an abridged version of a 2015 article from journalist and author Rachel Monroe. And it's just one example of the thousands of sinister stories that exist on the internet. Last year, Rachel released a book called Savage Appetites, which explores the appeal of true crime. As someone who works in the podcast industry, I come across a lot of true crime content. It seems like half of the top 10 podcasts on iTunes at any given time are related to true crime in some way. I wanted to learn more about what makes the genre so popular, so I gave Rachel a call. I was really fascinated by true crime stories when I was a teenager, probably way too young to be reading pretty dark stuff. 
And at that point, it felt very much like uh, an interest that uh, that would mark me as, as creepy or an outsider in some way, something that I should keep to myself. Um, and then it's been interesting to see over the years how um, true crime, particularly this a certain flavor of true crime that um, has become a kind of bonding exercise for for women in particular um, has become this really popular phenomenon and so this is clearly not just a feature of my own psychology there's something uh, in our society in our culture that's making these stories for all their darkness really um, appealing and kind of appetizing before there was the podcast serial or netflix's making a murderer or even live coverage of the O.J. Simpson trial on TV. Show you the globe that has been marked. Rachel says the media has always had a fixation on telling stories of crime, dating back to penny publications of the 19th century. Before public executions, people would circulate broadsides, telling the stories of the criminals' misdeeds. Townsfolk flocked to Lizzie Borden's trial, for example and filled newspapers with coverage of the case to find out if she really did kill her parents with an axe. People loved to learn about deviant acts, and they loved even more to see the perpetrators pay for them. Tonight on 2020 Manhunt. Nowadays, people are more comfortable than ever admitting their fascination with serial killers like John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer. After 15 frustrating days of false leads and dead ends. Where people used to get weird looks when posing their theories about who really killed John Benet Ramsey, now four other people will jump in with their own ideas and related documentary recommendations. But where has this uptick in interest and the increased willingness to talk about it come from? You know, all these podcasts that we're seeing that are just um, recycling true crime stories? Are they creating this interest or responding to it? But I I certainly think this most recent um, true crime boom has a lot to do with new forms of media. So you're seeing a lot of these old stories like Ted Bundy, you know, that's a story of Ted Bundy has been told over and over again, but all of a sudden it's like, no, you have to have a podcast about it. You have to have like several, like a Netflix documentary about it. You have to have a Netflix, um, you know, scripted drama about it. The true crime genre is by no means monolithic. There are movies, books, shows, and podcasts that focus on different eras or types of crime with varying degrees of detail and darkness. The genre includes shows like Snapped or 48 Hours, long-form journalistic podcast series like Serial or Dr. Death, or casual discussion-based podcasts like Crime Junkie or Last Podcast on the Left. But the one podcast that has maybe played the most significant part in true crime's current popularity is My Favorite Murder. Oh my god. Oh hi. Hi, welcome! Comedians Georgia Hardstark and Karen Kilgariff started the podcast My Favorite Murder in 2016. Every episode, each woman brings a story of a crime to tell to the other. They don't remember every detail and sometimes get names and dates mixed up. It's usually about five or ten minutes into an episode when they finally start discussing the topic in the description. 
before that, they're just talking about their cats and bantering. But to their fans, that doesn't matter. Their funny commentary and intimate conversations have earned them millions of monthly listens and dedicated fans called murderinos. They abide by the mantra, stay sexy, and don't get murdered, which Karen and Georgia came up with to empower their audience to remain vigilant against the dangers that women face. Really, I, I, I live by stay sexy and don't get murdered. I just think it's, it's the most important thing in the world to keep yourself safe, to keep yourself like knowing what it is. Because the thing is, it's, it's not history because it still goes on today. And also keep yourself socially conscious. That was Mimi, who lives in Spain. Like a lot of millennials, she grew up reading books like Nancy Drew and Goosebumps. But she didn't stop there. Her interest in crime and mystery brought her to seek out more books, YouTube videos, and podcasts. I must have found my favorite murder in maybe like 2015, 2016. And uh, yeah, I've always loved how they combine true crime and comedy. It's very my style of of dealing with true crime. And it's like very um, important to me, I would say, like having another kind of style of true crime content. Mimi listens to episodes of My Favorite Murder during her commute or when she's running errands. She likes the minisodes, where Karen and Georgia read listener-submitted stories about eerie ghost encounters and old hometown murders. Mimi also loves to read about the Manson murders, and is always the one her friends go to when they can't remember a fact about a true crime case. People think that it's almost like some kind of like sadomasochism, where I'm like trying to, to make myself feel bad, but it, it doesn't. It's just like fascinating to me. Um, I, I kind of explain that it's it's like history, but it happens to be like history that isn't completely like what I love about it is that it leaves out no details. My favorite murder has become more than a crime or even a comedy podcast. It's proof that women can take interest in unpleasant, ugly things. Karen and Georgia often venture off the topic of crime to talk about therapy and mental health. The podcast has given women a community where it's okay to address usually taboo subjects. It's an opportunity to face your fears head on from the safety of your car, bedroom, or kitchen. And another true crime podcast, Crime Junkie, gives women more concrete tools to help handle these crimes. Their website offers an If I Go Missing packet, which you print out and fill with information like emergency contacts, frequently visited locations, and fingerprints. Anything that might help loved ones or police if something goes wrong. Mimi keeps her own habits to stay safe. I always have a a knife on me and I always am very vigilant of like where I am and who is near me. I'm always thinking about it and I'm always kind of, I'm always aware of my surroundings. I try to, I do the exit strategy a lot where when you enter a room, you find two exits as soon as you're in there so that you can always be prepared for whatever happens. And it sounds like super paranoid, but it takes five seconds. And it doesn't, for me personally, it doesn't like stress me out. I'm not, I'm not super worried, but I I like to just be prepared and I like to be able to kind of have control over 
my life and uh, and what could happen to me. But is it a woman's job to prevent that from happening? I talked to Rachel about this too. There, there are people who have like written articles that I find really unsatisfying, kind of like short internet articles, like why do women love true crime? And the answer is usually like, oh, they want to avoid being prey to serial killer, which I think is just like the stupidest response, you know? Um, it doesn't speak to my experience. It doesn't, you know, if that was the real motivation, people would just like, I don't know, like take a self-defense class. The feminization of the true crime genre could be traced back to Anne Rule, one of the most well-known and successful true crime writers. Before she came along, the true crime genre was a bit of a boys' club, documenting stories of mafia and drug runners. But Anne Rule wrote about domestic violence, child abuse, and serial killers who specifically targeted women. These stories that had were like always happening but didn't really have a cultural prominence, I think because they were considered shameful or they were considered, you know, like, oh, that's the, you know, that stays within the family. That's not for, we don't talk about that in public. And um, the massive success of her books, I think, really spoke to hunger that people had and, and primarily women had. It's great that we're having these conversations about the violence women uniquely face. But even though many of the true crime cases we remember center around female victims, murders where a man kills a woman are only a quarter of the murders that happen in the U.S. So who are we leaving out when we tell these stories? The majority of victims of violence in this country are young Black men. Their stories aren't being told, so we're less likely to perceive of them as as victims. And then at the same time, we have this like overperception of women, particularly white women, as vulnerable. Transgender individuals are also disproportionately targets of violence. At least 21 have been killed so far this year. Indigenous women in the United States face murder rates 10 times higher than the national average. And 22% of serial murder victims between 1970 and 2009 were sex workers. Still, the crime rate in the U.S. has been going down steadily since the 1990s. But you wouldn't know that based on the increased visibility of media covering true crime cases. This can create an exaggerated sense of danger, and therefore an increased dependency on the justice system and the police to keep us safe from these perceived dangers. But Rachel says questions about the effectiveness of the police are popping up more and more. I do think that you're seeing more of a tone of not just necessarily trusting the police or the police being cast as like, or law enforcement being like the good guys in these stories a lot more. um, If you think about, you know, making a murderer or serial or any of these wildly popular series, they often have um, a lot of elements that are like questioning what law enforcement did. Um, And so I think that's probably going to be a stronger element going forward. Lots of true crime stories don't really focus on the victims anyway. We end up learning a lot about a murderer's relationship with their parents or how well they did in school. We look for early signs of criminal behavior and wonder what drove them to kill. That thorough reporting is what makes a good true crime story good, but we don't necessarily always learn the same amount of detail about the victims. They become statistics, faceless data, 
Should these true crime stories be told more responsibly to commemorate these victims' lives? I'm sort of an advocate for, I don't think that all of our consumption of of media needs to necessarily be um, responsible. It would be like eating oatmeal for every meal. I think there's like a, there can be a value in um, entertainment or like maybe there can even sometimes be a value in, in sensationalism as long as you kind of know that that's what you're getting out of it. I think the tricky thing with true crime and the thing that troubles me about it sometimes is that there's like often there's a veneer of kind of social responsibility um, that like a very thin, like a chocolate coating of social responsibility over like what is actually just totally um, sensational voyeurism. So I asked Rachel, does she think true crime will be popular forever? You know, every now and then I'll get a call or something from a TV producer and they're like, we need the hot, the next new hot true crime story. And it's like, (laughs) especially with the crime rate, you know, plummeting since the 90s, there's just like fewer and fewer of these wild stories that um, these producers seem to want to make into Netflix shows. I mean, we're just going to like run out of brutal crimes to make TV shows out of, hopefully. Um, so, I, you know, I wonder if, if there is going to be a little bit of fatigue, if we're going to move on to, you know, mountain rescue stories or, or like natural disaster stories or get our thrills some other way. After talking to a couple true crime enthusiasts, I wanted to hear from some people creating true crime content about how they navigate telling these stories. Luckily, I didn't have to look very far. Two producers here at The Drag have been working on a long-form true crime podcast called The Orange Tree for the past year and a half. Um, I'm Tanae Thomas, (laughs) Um, and I am an audio director at The Drag, where you both work as well. My name is Haley Butler, and I'm the senior producer at The Drag and co-teacher of the senior capstone class at UT, the journalism school. The Orange Tree podcast follows the murder of Jennifer Cave in 2005. Jennifer is 21 years old and living in Austin at the time. She had just gotten a new job and was picking herself back up after feeling a little aimless and maybe spending some time with the wrong people. She went out to celebrate with her friend, Colton Petoniak. He was a business student at UT and also a frequent partier and drug dealer. They ended up back at his apartment, and no one knows exactly what happened after 1 a.m., but Jennifer was shot on the right side of her body and killed. The next morning, Colton's sort of friends with benefits, Laura Hall, comes over. Colton bought some cleaning supplies at the local hardware store, and the two escaped to Mexico for six days. So our story is telling a fuller story of what happened in 2005 and kind of reflecting 15 years later on that story. And um, our angle specifically is that we're talking a lot about Jennifer and giving her perspective um, as get, we, we, we talk about Jennifer um, because we relate to her being so close to her in age and being kind of in that same life position at a certain point. Like her dad calls her, her stepdad called her rudderless. We've all been there. And so we felt a responsibility to like be able to have her uh, be a part of the story instead of it being, um, 
you know, like a repeat of, of some coverage that happened in 2005. So that's kind of like our fresh angle on it. Haley and Tanu recently graduated college, and it's safe to say this is the biggest project they've ever taken on. They examined document after document, visited courthouses, drove to a prison four hours away, deciphered legal jargon. They interviewed Jennifer's family. They interviewed the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, and the reporters that covered the case as it happened. They interviewed Colton and talked to Laura, all to get the full picture of how that one night in 2005 impacted a community. So how and when did uh, you two decide to pursue this story? We talked for a long time about what kind of podcast we could start, and Haley and I even started um, a different like series podcast about Pulitzer Prize winners that we started for a little bit um, that we passed on to other students. But during one of the conversations, the story of Jennifer Cave was brought up. And I remember us just talking about how each of us kind of remembered bits and pieces of how um, the story went, but we weren't sure when it happened, exactly um, how many victims there were, just like very the specifics of, the specifics of it were kind of unclear to all of us. So Robert Quigley, who had worked at the Statesman when this happened, remembers it, rem- remembered it very well because he, the newsroom had covered it and he had edited pieces for it. Robert Quigley is our boss and the executive producer of The Orange Tree. So he kind of ran it down and all of it felt more familiar than I knew before he ran it down. So that was really odd to us when, when we found out that it happened in 2005 because... That was 2018, and it felt like it had happened much more recently. Like, I remember just walking in West Campus when I lived there, and my friends just pointing up to the orange tree and saying, like, oh, do you guys remember what happened to the the girl in that complex? And just, like, that being something that I always thought happened very recently because people would talk about it, like, remember? Like, I should remember. So I did remember for some reason. Um, and it turned, as it turns out, it's because just like, just every just generation since then has passed on this story in such a way that it's gotten kind of convoluted, but also it keeps getting passed on because people remember it so well. Um, so from that point, we're like, this should be something that we actually tell in a way that is whole. So people don't just pass it down as like this fable in West Campus, but it's passed down in a way that respects the victim and also remembers it accurately and correctly. Because the truth of the matter is that no matter how much you tell it in like a eerie tone of like, remember what happened and like it was in a bathtub, the real details of the, of the case are more interesting and more um, important, personally, I think important for people to know. Um, so that's why we were like, it should be told in a podcast, in a long-form podcast where we get to address all the aspects of it. I had an experience kind of similar to Tanu. When I was apartment hunting for the first time, one of the first things that popped up when I researched West Campus apartments was a Wikipedia article about the murder at the Orange Tree. The condos were right between the journalism school and a little lot filled with food trucks, so I passed it often. And when I did... I was struck by how a building with cute circular windows that looked like orange slices could contain such a dark story. Tanu went on to explain the most difficult parts of the reporting process. The big part, a big part of why this this is difficult is that it needs to be told through the voices of the 
people involved. And so sourcing is, was a huge issue for us because we want to convey to our sources that the reason we want them on this is because they're the ones that can tell this best. And as much as we have the ability to put this thing together and and can tell the story and look for all the things and ask all the right questions to tell the story in a whole way, they're the ones that can really give us the answers that we need and um, tell from their perspective, the, the perspective that we need to tell this in, in a way that isn't biased or, you know, uh, uninformed. So getting, getting those sources um, was a little bit difficult for us because there was a lot of convincing for, for people that didn't want to dredge this up 15 years later. And again, I use the word dredge because it is, it's a heavy subject and it, for a lot of people, it is dredging it up. But we, what we needed to convey to them and what was sometimes difficult to convey was that this is being brought up for a good reason. Because in the long haul, people will remember the story in a, in a, in a way that's actually, actually hits all the facts instead of, you know, in, in a way that people kind of sometimes remember it now. Haley adds on to that. The, the sensitive thing that we keep talking about is um, that Jennifer wasn't just shot in the right side of her body, but the next day um, before Colton and Laura fled to Mexico for six days, Jennifer's body was mutilated um, and her hands were removed and so was her head. Um, and there were other things done to her um, but her body was left in Colton's bathtub for her stepdad to find. Um, and that's heavy. And we want this story to not just be that. That's how we heard this story at UT when we were there. When Tanu would like walk by and somebody would be like, hey, at the orange tree, you know, this, 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 and this happened. We felt such an emotional connection with this story and with the um, with the victim and like her placement in life that we didn't want her story to just be told that way. Uh, because we wouldn't want our story to be told that way. We wouldn't want our friend's story to be told that way. Absolutely. And uh, so this was this kind of like your guys' first time venturing into the true crime genre? No, it wasn't. When Chinu and I uh, met for the first few times, we talked about our favorite true crime podcasts. Um, we we really enjoy true crime. Um, we, um, yeah, it, it it's it's a good like it's a good it's a good story i'm not just talking about the jennifer cave case i'm talking about true crime stories um they're they're real you get so many aspects of what a good story is when you listen to a well-done true crime podcast like you feel emotionally connected um you feel grief loss conflict like it's all it's a good story when it's done really well and you get to hear everybody involved and um, when you get to humanize people even more, um, it, it, it is, it's a good story. Um, and I, I, I do see why it's popular. I think the reason people connect so much to podcasts and specifically true crime podcasts is because they feel like they're the only ones listening to the podcast. Like they feel like 
I'm the only one who's ever connected to this host and the stories that they tell, which is really nice. Like it's, it makes the platform feel super personal and it makes you feel like you have a connection with this person who's telling you a story. So I remember specifically walking to my car on my way um, home from class one day, I had a really long commute at that point. And so I needed to find something to fill that time because I had listened to um, the Taylor Swift album that I was stuck on like 45 times in a row. So I was like, I need something else to listen to on the drive home. And I just typed in true crime into the podcast app. Um, and so like just the first true crime thing that came up that had good ratings, I was like, that's what I'm gonna listen to. And I was so hooked for like a year and a half. I would tell everyone to listen to it. And um, I, I quickly found out everyone else who was listening to it was doing the same thing because they have huge communities of followers. Um, uh, people who listen to these kind of podcasts just really feel a strong connection. I mean, a lot of the time it is because they're sympathetic of the victim. They're the, they're people who like to hear these kind of stories because one, they're so completely, either they can relate to it because they've had a loved one who was violently murdered or because that this has never happened to them and it feels um, almost entertaining to kind of hear something that's so out of the, like, blue for them like so something that would never happen to them so in any regard it creates a really like strong knit, like close-knit community of listeners and followers Tanu started to think about things differently after changing from a true crime fan to a journalist reporting on a true crime story after reporting on this story so much i can't help but see like the holes in it like I'm waiting for them to address the victim's family or the victim or I'm waiting for them to really tell the story in a whole way which sometimes it doesn't happen it does happen sometimes in some true crime podcasts but in a lot of the popular ones it doesn't and that's not to knock them because they are again I listen to it and happily for a really long time so they do really make a difference and they do make people feel connected and inform people about a lot of stuff that they guys wouldn't know about but at the same time for me personally I like to listen to more like fleshed out stories now because I can't help but wonder how does the family feel now or I can't help but wonder where is this person now where are all of these people that we're talking about like it's just something that will gnaw at me and so the podcast platform doesn't really give me everything I need sometimes so I have to like go home and Wikipedia it or like look up where they're at um so I guess all of those things I get um, are what we kind of looked out for with this podcast is, is to not leave uh, anything for the for the listeners to go home and have to look up. Uh, we wanted to be able to address everything like present day and in the past. And I think um, just to add on to that is that some of the people that aren't able to go and to full depth of stories aren't actually claiming that they're journalists. We're coming out of a journalism school and we're going to do journalism um, podcasting. Um, you can almost blame the medium for that because anybody can podcast. And I think that's the fun of it, too. But, um, you know, nobody is always claiming to be a journalist when they're trying to tell a story. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I do hold people to a higher standard than I should when it comes to these kind of podcasts because um, I want to hear so much. But then I often do forget, like, wait. They don't have to tell me all of that because they don't have to report on this. They really are just telling the story for, you know, the listeners that want to hear the story and then hear their comments on it. What do you guys think makes true crime so appealing to so many people? So, yeah, there's a lot of different reasons one can be drawn to 
to true crime. And I guess it just depends on who you are. And um, I do think that for those reasons, like true crime is a very beneficial job. Like it can be very beneficial and um, almost therapeutic to people who need to listen to it because they are afraid of a lot of things. Uh, like the realities of the world and the fact that there are bad people out there and Mm -hmm. the fact that bad things could happen to them. This is a way for them to kind of slowly get immersed into the reality of what does happen out there. And I think it's good for victims and victims' families to get um, a sort of recognition in a way where it's just like, listen, you guys get to live every single day not having anything happen to you or anyone you love or you're like, you know, like you just get to live. So this is, this is a reminder that no people like us are out here um, and we exist every day knowing that this happens because we can't really escape it. So it's a really, it, it helps unite like those two groups of people, uh, people who have had to deal with this kind of thing and people who have never had to deal with it kind of seeing that. Request Pending is a production of the Drag Audio Production House from the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas. This podcast is hosted, reported on, and produced by me, Sarah Schleed, and the executive producer is Robert Quigley. This episode could not have happened without the help of the Drag senior producer, Haley Butler. Social media and marketing are by Sabrina LaBeouf. The Drag's technical director is Christian McDonald, and Maddie Thomason is the design director. Associate producers on request pending are Kadisha Balde, Maya Fawaz, Chase Caracostas, Michaela Mondragon, Savannah Olson, and Gabrielle Sanchez. The drag is made possible thanks to the Dallas Morning News Innovation Endowment and by individual donations. 